the way I illustrated it was, imagine we were construction engineers of some kind or civil engineers of some kind building a bridge. If we're all using our own ideas of standards and and our own ideas of how something should be written, someone might be building the bridge with wood. Someone might be using steel. Someone might be just throwing tar over it. Someone might be using toothpicks. There's so many options for how this bridge is put together and it'll work. Someone will be able to drive across the bridge, but over time, well, you yeah. might want to say, you know, let's replace the toothpicks with some wood. And then over here, we'll replace the wood with some steel and kind of slowly but surely improve that. As large organizations find themselves navigating their way around hybrid cloud, developers are being asked to shift their priorities as well as their mindset for this new world. For insight on new cloud architectures, deployment strategies, and the shifting culture landscape, tune into Cisco's podcast, Cloud Unfiltered. Here comes the URL. It's cs.co slash podcast. Welcome everyone to the Stack Overflow podcast. I am one of your hosts today. My name is Sierra Ford. I'm going to let my co-hosts introduce themselves as well. I'm Matt. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm Matt Kiananda. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow, and I'll hand it over to Cassidy to introduce her lovely self. I'm Cassidy. I'm Head of Developer Experience and Education at Remote. Well, um, as always, I'm excited about um, getting to record this episode today. We have some fun topics to discuss. I'm going to pass it off to Cassidy to introduce a pretty fun thing that I think most of us probably have some re- experience with, which is React. Why don't you let us know about React, Cassidy? Yes. So React is officially hitting their release candidate for React 18, which is a big deal because React hasn't seen a really major version upgrade in a long time. And so for those who don't know the history of React and things, React first came out, I think, in 2013 or so, maybe early 2014. I started using it in 2014, and it has changed a lot since then. (laughs) And so you might have seen the various iterations of React in kind of being the foundation for the virtual DOM and seeing how it's used in different frameworks nowadays and a gigantic open source ecosystem that has come from React and class-based components switching over to functional components and React hooks and everything. So many changes in the React ecosystem. And the last real major change was I think it's like three or four years ago now, like 2018 mm. or so when React Hooks came out and that changed everything. It made React kind of lean more towards the functional programming side of things, which we've talked about functional programming on this podcast before. And then React 17 came out last year in 2021 and the change was no changes needed, no updates needed. Like that was just it. And people were kind of confused because they were just like, why would I upgrade if there's nothing I need to do? It just is. And I think it was kind of a turning point for React where the changes that are happening under the hood are much more methodical and less about let's move on to the next version. Let's make this faster. Let's make this better. And it's much more, how can we make this framework much more robust for the next iteration of the next several years for people using the framework. And so with React 18 coming out, what they did is they created the React 18 working group for people to give feedback on it. And I was in the React 18 working group and and also gave feedback on React 17. And it was interesting talking to the React team because 
it was so different. They, it was like they changed their tune where they're just like, yeah, we were really excited to announce suspense. And then they kept us in suspense for a few years. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. But like they announced it and how suspense worked changed so much over time. If you wanted to experiment with the new features that were in React that weren't actually released, but just on a branch and stuff, it would be changed within a month where they did a lot of research and development and experimenting with the framework to make sure that their ideas were sound and so that way it would work well in the future. And because Meta, Facebook Meta, owns the framework, a lot of their changes were being used in production on the Facebook website to see like, okay, can this handle it? Great. What if we change this? What if we change that? So it's been a very, very slow, methodical race journey to get to this point of the React 18 release. And honestly, if you want to upgrade to React 18 from React 16, even, or if you want to skip 17, you only have to change one line. It's just the root of your application is different. Everything else should just work just fine. And I think because it has been so slow and because it's been so methodical, it feels like React has entered a different phase of where it is today, where of, of where it was before, where it's now like the big frameworks like Django. It's now like the big frameworks like, or even languages like Python, when Python switched from two to three, granted that was a big change. It's something where you don't have to care as much about the fun little new features that might be added, and you don't have to make a lot of breaking fixes to to fix your application when you upgrade. It should just work. It's very backwards compatible, and it adds features that should hopefully, in theory, be very future focused. That's the kind of update that I like. Can we just acknowledge the fantastic summary that Cassie yeah. just came over the last five minutes? Well done. Thank you so much. I'm done. Let's end the podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> we out. Done. I just have to say, though, I love when things like this are updated and you don't have to basically change how you fundamentally understand whatever the thing is. So like, right. you don't have to relearn anything about React essentially or really change too much about your existing React applications. You can just kind of update and enjoy the little new quirky things that it does now, the new updates without having to, like you said, introduce any breaking changes because you're trying to keep up with the times. I like that. That's the kind of stuff I like to hear. It's very like comforting as a developer. You're oh, just like, yeah. okay, I can upgrade and it'll be fine. Because people who are upgrading from like React 15 to 16 when hooks were introduced, whew, yeah. that yeah. was a change. And there's still code bases today that I occasionally work with where I'm like, oh, I have to change so much to get even close to modern now. So the fact that you don't have to worry about that is... Major relief. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember being in teams where we actually had to fight to upgrade. We were, I think mm. we were on a, an older version of React and we had to kind of like sit down with our product manager and be like, hey, like we think hooks and everything else that's coming bundled as part of React 16 is going to provide value to us long term. Can we have the dev time in order to actually go through and, and change things to make sure that we can we can upgrade? So I think I love seeing updates like this where they're non-breaking and they increase the adoption and the likelihood that teams are going to upgrade and, and then get access to kind of like these these new features. It's a lot easier. It makes my life easier. And I like that. 
It's a real lesson in messaging too. You can't just say, we're working on it. It's a lot of research. Bye. Because people will be afraid about these big changes that you have to make. And so they had to be very, very careful with how they released new features, how they said, okay, we were thinking about releasing this, but we're not. And here's why. And keeping people in the loop without making them nervous is, is a tough thing to do when you have literally millions of people working with your library. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was thinking too, from the perspective of a developer advocate, like one of the things you have to look out for all the time is deprecation when you're creating any kind of educational content, because that means whatever you, the blog post, the video, the course has to be updated, which can be a pain. (laughs) I've been on teams before (laughs) where we were hesitant to make educational content just because of how often things can change. And when things change, you have to update and that takes time. And sometimes by the time you finally update, whatever the thing is, it changed again. <laughs> yeah. So another thing, like that's another added benefit of like these small micro changes that don't really, that improve the experience for the developer and like improve performance for the application, but don't necessarily like change the fundamental basis of whatever the language or framework or whatever it is. It's great for us too. like all around just content creators rejoice. Yes. (laughs) I remember actually when I think it was when React 17 came out, they made it so that way you don't have to import React in every file anymore. You can just import it at the top level and it'll just work. And that was literally right after Ken C. Dodds released his Epic React course, where he had that in every video. And I remember he he was just so sad. And he was just like, are you kidding me? If I had known this was coming, I could have changed my entire course. And and he had put so many, so many hours into it. And once again, it's a lesson in messaging and, and being able to be like, this kind of stuff is coming. This isn't out yet. And it's it's tough because you don't want to give people false hope. You don't want people to worry. And it's dev advocacy. Yeah. Woo. I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> one, <laughs> one thing I'd love, I'd absolutely love, I'm not sure if there's a solution that exists for this already, but I'm not sure how many times you all have been working on CSS and you've made a, a nice CSS file. You put all the stuff in there and then you're like, why is why is this not updating? Or well, my CSS is is not there, and it's because you forgot to link the CSS file at the top of your page. If they could just do that, but with the CSS files, I would be <laughs> so happy. That is one of the reasons why I default to like Code Pen whenever I'm creating like a silly little like offhand yeah, thing. Great. Yeah, Code Pen is amazing for that. Honestly, yeah, like not to make everything about K-pop, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but it I- had to happen. <laughs> Let's go. I'm currently working on a my, like my first CSS art thing that I've done in like a really long time. And it's supposed to be a replication of like some K-pop poster or whatever. And I went straight to Copen because I hate having to do like link, the whatever. Yeah, of all, that. All, all the boilerplate. Yeah. Like, I don't want to think about that. You all know that I'm a lazy developer. I just want to finish what I have to do and get it done. And CodePen is great for that. So Whoever is in charge of maintaining like CSS updates needs to get on that, please, if you're listening. That would be very helpful. And speaking of CodePen and projects founded by Chris Coyer, Chris Coyer founded is one of the founders of CodePen, but he also founded CSS Tricks, which is a very, very popular blog article conglomerate site of things. And 
honestly, if you'd have done CSS, you have probably looked at yeah. a CSS tricks article at some point. And they you had your bacon saved. Yeah, and they were just acquired by DigitalOcean. Yeah, that's which is really very cool. exciting. This is awesome. I used to work for DigitalOcean. This that was actually my first tech job. Like that was my first job in the tech industry. Wow, starting off strong. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could say that I was a I was a contractor there, and I worked on. They had acquired. Alligator IO and another company that's like similar where they would like create developer content. DigitalOcean had recently acquired both of those platforms and I was helping to kind of update any of the deprecated content and bring it up to standard to like DigitalOcean's like style guide and all that kind of stuff. It was a pretty cool first job. That was my first time like having to work directly with JavaScript and React and TypeScript and I didn't know what I was doing, but somehow made but it through. But you did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is cool. This is cool. And I have Riverside open, but I have like a million tabs with CSS tricks tabs open like right now as we speak. <laughs> so you're so right. CSS tricks is a lifesaver if you work with CSS at all. It was kind of funny because one of the comments that I saw on the announcement was saying like, okay, I'm okay with you being acquired. I'm happy for you, but just don't lose the flexbox guide because i reference that every single time i do css please keep the flexbox yeah. guide and so oh. they've confirmed the flexbox guide is safe it, it will still be there i don't know what it is and it seems like this is a universal thing across everyone's minds same with reddit regex as well is that nobody seems to be able to retain information relating to how flexbox or css grid works css because grid every oh my gosh I have to look it up every time. And that Flexbox, I've got it pinned to my bookmark because I, I need to <laughs> reference it every single time. It's ridiculous. But it's a fantastic guy. You know what you have to do? You have to teach Flexbox. The only reason why mm. I remember Flexbox is because I had to teach that to a bunch of like 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And since then, I've remembered it. But CSS Grid, I cannot, like, it, I just can't absorb that. It. Yeah, because I because same I I have retained Flexbox because of talking about it and using it so much. CSS Grid. Sarah Drasner had made a grid generator that does the CSS for you. If it weren't yeah. for that, I would just never use it because I cannot figure out a pattern. I'll share a link to it in the show notes. Her generator is a game changer if you ever want to use CSS Grid. Because maybe that's what oh. I need in my life because I never know what to do with CSS Grid. Like, I just don't know. I can't remember it. I can't remember when I'm supposed to use it. It's bad for me. There seems to be quite a bit of debate around when to use CSS Grid and when to use Flexbox. It seems like they're very interchangeable, but I'm not sure in what specific use case you'd choose one or the other. So, Cassidy, it looks like. I always have opinions time. Hello. on things. <laughs> I know. Long story short, if you're doing something that is meant to be 2D, you use Grid. Otherwise, you use Flexbox. And so if you have, for example, a linear list of things, for example, let's just say you want your team members listed on the page, it might wrap so that way it is a grid of sorts, but typically it's just one list and it's one list of things. But if you very purposely want something that should be a 2D grid where like certain columns appear and, and disappear and the columns matter, that's when you use grid. Maybe I'll remember moving okay. forward. Yeah, because flex is really good for individual directions, like either yes, having flex direction row or column, like that's mm. it. If you want to be able to use both in one thing, have rows and columns, that's when you use grid. 
I think the one thing I remember reading, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read something like the rule of thumb is for like more like smaller components in your whatever your layout is, you use Flexbox and for the more bigger things you use grid. I don't know if I remember that correctly. That might be a nice like high level rule of thumb guidance. I don't know. I found CSS grid good for kind of like visualizing the the actual layout of an, a page. Right. That, that's been quite useful because you can kind of see kind of like where your devs are going to go and like how things are going to scale and, and work around that. I found that especially with the this, when you're creating the grid and your friends, what was it called again? The CSS grid generator. Exactly. Yes. I found that super useful because then you could just plug in kind of like the overall structure of how your page looks and you're like, sweet, I want that one. And you can put that in. That was really useful. I think. CSS grid is much more strict than Flexbox as well. And like things that it would just kind of shift something over a little bit on Flexbox and you could change it. Things that exact same thing that might shift Flexbox might completely destroy your grid. And Mm. there's pros and cons to that. It's kind of like with TypeScript and JavaScript, like with TypeScript, it's much more strict with types and it will yell at you (laughs) if something is wrong. And JavaScript, it's like, yeah, you could try that. Why not? (laughs) Speaking of, Type syntax in JavaScript. I have a little bit of news that I can share. Oh, yes, I'd love that. So Microsoft has proposed type syntax for JavaScript. Yeah. When did this happen? Like this past week. Why am I missing out on all the developer news? What am I? Where am I supposed to be that (laughs) I'm not? That's why we're here. Don't worry. (laughs) It's interesting to see these types. Now, I only read a high level little bit of it. It's not exactly like TypeScript from what I've seen. It's more like you can add type declarations and comments and JavaScript can like read those and be just like, ah, this is what should happen. So it's like type checking, but not necessarily generating like generics or strict typing that you can do with other languages. It's an optional syntax to add types by the looks of it. So you can, exactly as Cassidy said, you can have, say for example, a comment and within that comment block, you say at param, a is a number and that'll be above a function and then th- that'll determine whether or not that variable there is of type number or text or string or whatever that might be. Oh, cool. I'm down for it. Like I definitely lean more towards like the loosey goosey JavaScript. Like let's just see what happens because yeah. it's fun to mess with those kinds of bugs. <laughs> but by having it just be an optional thing that you can add to certain components or functions or things, I think that could be particularly useful where like TypeScript and Flow and other languages can still innovate in this space, but it still adds some of those features to JavaScript. Because for example, once again, I like writing JavaScript, but I still often have a TypeScript linter anyway, just so that way, if I am accidentally parsing a string as an int or something, I can fix that quickly uh, before running anything. I think I've mentioned this probably several times on the podcast, but one of my major gripes with JavaScript is that it's too flexible, in my opinion. Well, when I was learning it, that was one of my issues is that I was like, I don't know what I it feels like I can do anything, but sometimes when I do anything, I still get errors. So what is going on? So I think that probably could help fix my little beef with JavaScript mm. <laughs> is if I could get some. That was what kind of made me interested in TypeScript was the fact that it's more constricting, constraining. You've got guardrails. Yeah, mm. you have guardrails. Yeah. So that kind of limits what you can do, which not isn't always the best thing. But when I was learning, that's kind of what I wanted anyway. That's exactly 
one of one of my issues when when I was learning JavaScript and going working kind of like older legacy code bases or where you have smaller teams that have a lot more autonomy around how they build stuff is that with that autonomy comes the flexibility to build things that maybe shouldn't have been built the way they (laughs) should have been built. And it can get really confusing because if you've got, I was in a situation where it was a small team, there was a high amount of turnover, people coming in and out of the team, it was an agency. And so people were just coming in and putting their own flavor on this particular code base. So I think the the biggest issue here is consistency because you didn't know how things worked in terms of a logic perspective. And oh my goodness, that was the most frustrating code base and because you just didn't know what to touch and how that was going to affect other yeah. bits. And it was just getting anything done was a huge pain in the bum. And then you had to, I'm going to get it down a real deep personal rabbit hole here. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to cut that one off. But consistency, I think, is probably the key here. JavaScript is great because it allows that flexibility, but with that flexibility comes, I think, a responsibility to to be consistent. It reminds me of I remember I was talking to my parents actually. They were they were kind of confused about like how software engineers have jobs when an app is done, basically. (laughs) And and they're just like, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. If if the app is done what are you doing? What's the point? Because for example, I worked at Venmo back in the day. Venmo's functionality hasn't really changed since I worked there seven, eight years ago now. Mm. Oh my gosh, I'm so old. Anyway, it hasn't changed that much. And yet they still have plenty of engineers and are hiring a ton to make this app work. And so they're like, why is this still a thing? (laughs) And the way I illustrated it was, imagine we were construction engineers of some kind or civil engineers of some kind building a bridge. If we're all using our own ideas of standards and and our own ideas of how something should be written, someone might be building the bridge with wood. Someone might be using steel. Someone might be just throwing tar over it. Someone might be using toothpicks. There's so many options (laughs) for how this bridge is put together and it'll work. Someone will be able to drive across the bridge, but over time, we might want to say, you know, let's replace the toothpicks with some wood. And then over here, we'll replace the wood with some steel and kind of slowly but surely improve that. And unfortunately, that's just kind of how a lot of software is. We probably could do better at the software engineering aspect of having those kinds of standards in place. And that's why things like TypeScript and really strict linters and those kinds of rules that enforce consistency are annoying but good because it keeps everybody on a team on the same page and software written in a way where cars can still drive across the bridge and and the software will still work. And unfortunately, that is very much in an ideal world and the work will rarely ever be done, quote unquote. It's funny that you mentioned this because I was just thinking to myself, in general, I feel like in software, we just don't really know what we're doing. (laughs) And I mean that in a very general kind of way, like we're all just kind of like figuring things out as far as like from every level when it comes to interviewing, when it comes to figuring out architecture, figuring out how we want to use JavaScript in our application and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that kind of ties into what I wanted to talk about. So Ever since I've read this article, I always think about it. It's called Being Glue. And it is an article that was started out as a talk. And it basically describes what happens to some people in their careers. So like I said, like software is a, it's not a new thing, but it does not have the same like level of standardized like regulation as some other industries have. So every company is different. 
everywhere you go, they're going to have a different way of doing things. And so sometimes uh, a situation that we find ourselves in, depending on what kind of company you work at, what's the size of your team, is that you'll be doing what she in her article refers to as glue work. So basically what that is, is maybe you're a software engineer, maybe you're like me, you're a developer advocate, and each of those roles have a certain task that you're supposed to be doing for your role, right? Build software, you advocate for developers. Glue work is the more managerial stuff that needs to be done and that is important, but doesn't directly tie to what your responsibilities are in whatever your role is. So that could be working on improving the onboarding process for people on your team. That could be working on getting projects on track and making sure that your teammates are unblocked and that they're being they're able to collaborate with whoever they need to collaborate. That could mean scheduling um, meetings and taking notes during those meetings and checking in with people to make sure that they're following up the way they should be. And this work isn't necessarily bad. It's actually very important, but sometimes it doesn't directly tie to whatever your tasks are. So what happens is sometimes if you're a developer, because you're spending time doing this glue work, you don't really get the opportunity to code and build features and ship software and all that kind of stuff. And so when performance time comes around, what happens with a lot of people is that because they've been busy doing the glue work, they miss out on the work they actually are supposed to be doing. And so they don't get promoted. And when they ask why, it's because, well, you've helped with onboarding, you've helped with collaboration, you've helped facilitate meetings and all that kind of good stuff. But how much code have you actually done? Depending on what your role, that's going to be important. For me, it could be how many articles have you written? How many talks have you given? It's different for each person. I read this, I found, I came across this article at a very pivotal time in my career where I was in a position where I was doing a lot of glue work. And it's not necessarily bad, right? If you want to be a manager, if you want to be a project manager, then it's important for you to do that stuff and maybe start doing it before you have the title so that you can move into that kind of role. But for me, that was not my desire. My desire was to work on technical things and to get to do developer advocacy. And I found myself doing a lot of this in-between work, which I didn't want to do. So in the article, she kind of outlines what your options are if you want to stop doing that or if you want to continue doing that, what things you should keep in mind for each of those options. Like it's a big reality in our industry that when you do technical work, you're viewed differently. So if you're a software engineer, you're going to be viewed differently than if you're a project manager, even if you have a technical background as a project manager. That's just how it is. So you have to think about that when you're deciding whether you want to make that move. Like, is this something you truly want? Are you okay with doing that work? Are you okay with the, I hate to say it, but the stigma that comes with that work? That's the kind of thing that she talked about, which I, as I thought about it, I was like, during like a few months ago when I was reading that, I was like, you know, I've worked really hard to learn how to code. I've worked really hard to get the certifications that I have. Am I willing to give that up to essentially be a manager or project manager, which I don't really want to do. I'm interested in hearing if you've ever confronted this issue before in your own career, if you ran into the issue and you figured out ways to fix it, if you didn't figure out ways to fix it, any tips, things like that. I'm interested in hearing what your take is on that. I've both leaned in and away from this type yeah. of work and and that type of direction throughout my career because I've kind of gone back and forth on do I want to do managerial type stuff or not, because it is fun, but it is a very different job yeah. to figure out if, if that's the type of job that you want to do. And I remember I was doing some kind of work like that. I don't remember many years ago. And, and I was talking to a mentor of mine and she was just like, okay, if you want to go in this route, that's great. You can do it. But 
if you want to stay an engineer and you want to keep being technical, you have to be as technical as possible to maintain credibility. Yeah. And she was just like, especially because you're a woman, especially because you are mixed, all these different things. It's just going to be something where you have to face the reality that people are going to look at you differently anyway, and you have to be as technical as possible. And and that kind of shook me up a bit. And I was just like, okay, I'll lean in more towards the engineering, the the just doing my job stuff. And then I found myself at another job saying, oh, I revamped the peer review process so that way we can give each other feedback better. And lo and behold, I ended up in a management position, which once again, I enjoyed, but I wanted to go back into technical stuff. And and so it's it's one of those things where you really have to figure out what you want to do because it will guide where you go. Yeah. And it can change like the whole trajectory of your career. I've been in uh, situations where I was being pushed more into the marketing side of things, social media marketing, PR, email marketing. And I was just like, this is not what I want. Like, I would like to be doing more, not even necessarily purely engineering, because that's not what I do now, but more of the technical kind of stuff. That's what I wanted. That's what I had learned. That's what I wanted to keep pursuing. And in the article, she mentions that this is a problem that a lot of women run into as well. Yeah, A lot of us tend to be good at the more like communication. I don't want to say that because I don't know if that's necessarily true. Society has conditioned us to be particularly good at the communication and that type of work. Right. And sometimes when you, it's almost like the issue for a lot of people outside of software is that they get pushed into like secretarial work for a lot of women. Like, and for us, that version of that is being pushed into like doing project management. Now is project management or even secretarial work a bad thing? No, it's totally not. If that's something you want to do, beautiful, like go for it. But that's not always the case. Like for a lot of people, that isn't the direction you want to go in. So you have to like stop yourself and like put your foot down a little bit and talk with people on your team who work with you and let them know that that's not the direction you want to go in. And sometimes the results can vary. They can vary. Sometimes you have to end up moving to a different company, moving to a different team, whatever the case may be. But it's important to like have a level of self-awareness when you're moving through your career to really know if this is what you actually want to do to avoid kind of, you know, one day you'll wake up and you're like, wait a second, I wanted to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a developer advocate. I wanted to be a cybersecurity engineer, whatever. And now I'm like doing something completely different that has nothing to do with that. And I have to find my way back to where I started. So I really think, especially if you work for a small startup, because it's really easy to get into you wear a lot of hats. And yes. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think like it's a good article to read. Um, I'm glad that I read it so early on in my career because I don't know where I would be right now if I didn't. It's super, super helpful. So, so yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because I think that's like a good thing to think about um, when you're navigating a career in the software world. I haven't read this yet, but I'm really excited to because I think this is the first time I've heard about this and I, my mind is just going like <laughs> remembering like my yeah. my previous history because from what I understand of, of, of what you two have said, some of this work I feel is valuable to do at some stage in your career because yeah. you'll gain skills there which will benefit you longer term and understanding what is, you know what an underperforming team has looked like so you can be a performing team later on, like you kind of know what is wrong in order to like later on identify those signals as to like how a high performing team kind of operates you know things like the peer review process or improving the onboarding onboarding documentation because you've just went through that and you're like nobody should have to go through that experience <laughs> right. again i think it, it's valuable to do but a hundred percent like it seems like the the name of the game here is stagnation in terms of your career like you can either get stuck doing all of these 
minutia things that don't add to your performance and you you don't have anything to talk about in your next role to be like i achieved yeah, this, this and this absolutely and it's about like finding a balance with it like you have to do some of it some of that work like just comes with being a part of a team especially if you're on a smaller team but you have to find balance and learn how to say no so that you're not stuck doing all of it or all of that work is taking up a hundred percent of your time so it's, it's definitely it's kind of like about. that phrase dress for the job that you want not for the one that you have yeah. do the tasks for the job that you want and yes. the ones that you have to but still like it it, it, <laughs> it matters and it's not just in companies too I, I know someone where she was on the core team for this very large library that is popular and they had a community issue and people started turning to her and saying hey will you help us with this and she's like I'm a technical core team member they're are community members who are willing to do the community work. I don't want to do the community work because I don't want to be pigeonholed into it. And it ended up being a whole thing because they didn't understand why she didn't want to do it. But meanwhile, the men on her team weren't stepping up and doing it either. And and it was a whole thing. But you you have to be able to stand up for yourself and say that so that you, like you say, aren't pigeonholed into it. And there's degrees of this. You do want to be a team player. And especially if it's a small company, you want to make sure they succeed, yada, yada, yada. But if you're going to be doing this kind of work, you should be acknowledged for it so that it doesn't hinder any promotions, raises, or future performance. If the company sees value in that as well, they can recognize that like you've added contributions to onboarding, peer review processes, all that kind of stuff. I think that's that's okay. One of the things I will add on top of this as well is that if you're a male engineer out there and you're on a team and you notice that one of the female engineers is the one responsible for doing all the meetings and admin work, be cognizant of that and be mindful of that and maybe take responsibility for kind of sharing that load. I think for any member of the team, like if you notice anyone in your team who doesn't have the title, Good point. you should just be like, hey, you maybe you should learn to say no. It just happens so <laughs> to be that like a lot of women tend to fall into that, but like Obviously, it's yeah. possible for anyone or anyone of any gender identity at that to like fall into that habit. But it's the kind of thing where if you see someone consistently doing that and it's not their job, you can volunteer to do it for one meeting and say like, hey, I'll take on the notes for the meeting this time. Yeah. Something like that. It's so simple, but it passes the responsibility a little bit. Or even just if you did it the last time and they kept doing it, you could be just like, hey, Matt, will you take notes for this meeting this time? It sets an expectation that it shouldn't all just be on one person. Okay, so we're coming to an end of our episode. We're going to end it off like we always do now with our tech recs. I'll kick it off by saying my recommendation this time around is the Nintendo Switch. I finally yes! got one over the weekend <laughs> and I'm really bad at video games. I've been playing Legend of Zelda Breath of, Breath of the Wild. Yes. So good. 10 out of 10. So good. I mean, it's good. And I'm having fun while I'm losing all the time. So that's how you know it's a good that's game. Okay. If you can have a good time while you're losing, then it's great. So that's my tech rec. I've been like having a good time being a really bad gamer and it's been a lot of fun for me. So I'll pass it on to everyone else here too. If you have any recommendations for our listeners. I have a recommendation. It's nowhere near as cool. <laughs> as a switch unfortunately but it is incredibly useful and it's flexbox froggy <gasps> yeah Do, does anybody know flexbox froggy Absolutely. okay this is what i use to learn flexbox it's basically a maybe 15 to 20 minute game which teaches you how to move 
a frog in certain positions across the screen and get it populating within a grid system. It's an incredibly fun little way to refresh your memory when it comes to Flexbox. And it's something I've used in the past to great effect. So Flexbox Froggy, thank you for existing. (laughs) We'll have the link in the description. A tool that I've been using more and more and that I'd like to recommend is Loom. Uh, And it's a Mm. video company. I think it's just L-O-O-M.com. And what's cool about Loom is it allows you to just quickly record a video. And it could be just of your face. It could be of your screen. It could be of both. But it quickly records the video. As soon as you hit stop, it uploads it. And you can share the link with people to share that video. And at remote, what's been nice is because we have such a low meeting culture and it's a very async culture because some people I work with are in Japan who are on very different time zones or, or in Europe, Hawaii, all over the place. And so instead of having a meeting where everybody can sync up, People often record looms where they quickly say, hey, here's the update on this. Here's what we have to do. I'll explain through this. And it's a great way to just kind of get your words out without having to write a doc. I've used it personally, too, where I talk about like a Go game that I just played. And I'm like, look how wild this move was. This is what happened here. And and it's been very, very useful. Awesome. Yeah, we use that in my company as well. It's, it's a huge facilitator for communication and stuff like that, especially async. So we're finally going to like come to an official close of the, the episode with a lifeboat. So for those of you who don't know, a lifeboat is an answer score of 20 or more to a question score of negative three or less that goes on to receive a score of three or more. It's a badge that can be awarded multiple times. And today we're going to shout out Joseph Z. His lifeboat was awarded for start Windows terminal from the CLI and pass in an executable command to run. So like I said, my name is Sierra Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. My name is Cassidy Williams. I'm head of developer experience and education at Remote. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And I'm Matt Kinander. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online and many of the places at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. Awesome. Thank you all so much for listening. See you soon. Bye. 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 <laughs>